0: But it is not as uh, good as wearing a face mask that covers the mouth and the nose.
1: Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID 19 Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the August 19th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. For an optimal viewing experience, we recommend expanding your browser window while viewing this presentation. You can adjust the slides window to suit your preferences. Polling questions will appear shortly in the slides window and will also appear at the end of the presentation. Please click the box that corresponds to your answer choice and click the Submit button. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. To attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window and is a green icon in the bottom menu. Today's learning objectives are describe how efficacy will be measured in vaccine studies, discuss accuracy of currently used COVID diagnostic and antibody tests, and describe efficacy of face shields relative to that of face masks. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. In response to a large number of learner questions, we are breaking from our typical format and setting aside this time to solely respond to the most recurrent themes. Answering your questions today is Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Allwater.
0: Yeah, thank you, Faith. And uh, always, sometimes having lots of good questions is as helpful as uh, regular formatting. So happy to uh, see what we have this week.
1: To submit your own question, please email qa at dkbmed.com that's q as in question a as in answer at dkbmed.com dr alwater this is our first question for the phase three trials of vaccines how is efficacy being measured in addition to presence of antibodies will the subjects be exposed to the virus
0: yeah so this question is an important one and actually presents also a very highly controversial issue so that easy part of this question is at least for the fda they have made very clear that they will not accept anything other than efficacy of at least 50% for the coronavirus vaccine. So that means at least half of people ha- have to be fully protected. Now, to give you some range, you know, measles virus offers anywhere from 90 to 98% protection, especially early on after immunization. Whereas influenza virus in any given year offers anywhere from 40 to 60% protection. But we know for influenza, although complete protection from acquiring influenza could be as low as 40% uh, in a given year, that it does help protect people that do acquire it from having illness as serious that might result in hospitalization or death. So there's even that impact. So for this coronavirus vaccine, although the FDA has put a pretty firm line at 50%, there could be other attributes as well that are important even if you don't have very high levels of complete protection. Now, the second part of this question has to do with what's called human challenge studies. These have been done in respiratory infections uh, for years, including in the United Kingdom common cold unit, where people were exposed to rhinovirus and enteroviruses and so on. And even influenza has been done. But this is an issue where I think people would be more excited about doing it if we truly had efficacious treatment. So we knew that remdesivir offered excellent treatment or that plasma worked really well, but we don't. The NIH and others are developing challenge viruses so that it's not the wild type coronavirus, but a challenge virus that hopefully mimics this. Now, whether it will be used, I think, is certainly a complex issue that has ethics. Do you expose people to a virus uh, intentionally? Now, on the plus side, by doing this with human challenge studies, you don't need 30,000 patients. You might need far fewer, at least, to know if a vaccine works. Uh, 20 to 40 patients might work really well, and then you have immediate correlates of protection. You have a core group You know exactly what's working, you can bleed people every two or three days for the volunteers, and we know there have been registries where people have signed up to do this. But the WHO had misgivings mainly because of the lack of a known treatment for COVID-19. And so, uh, really, uh, no human challenge virus trials are going ahead but it remains a very interesting proposal that could still have value, especially if we get better information about treatments having good track records.
1: Okay, and our next question, is it harmful to keep using inhalers to control a cough that is thought to be due to asthma when it may be a symptom of COVID-19?
0: Yeah, so this question, I think I would break into two parts. So inhalers come in a couple of forms. One uh, would be to help relax constricted bronchioles and so on in the respiratory tree. The other would be corticosteroid inhalers. So certain viruses are well known to precipitate bronchospasm. And uh, we don't know that any inhalers really are detrimental in those situations and often help modulate the cough to some degree. We know especially if FEV1 is reduced because the bronchospazate can be helpful. On the other hand, there are a couple of physicians that are advocating for inhaled corticosteroids for COVID-19. This is mainly anecdotal. There's been a, a case series of three patients in Japan Uh, where inhaled corticosteroids were used, but these are, you know, obviously uh, case report level information, and uh, studies are underway. They're listed on clinicaltrials.gov. We do know that uh, systemic corticosteroids are helpful, especially for people with more severe COVID-19. Whether it's useful early in disease or not, or even harmful, I, I think we don't know. So I would not use inhaled corticosteroids at at, at the stage, but um, I think inhalers, if someone does feel like they're having wheezing or severe cough, potentially is useful, but I, I can't say I'm seeing quality information to help guide that decision-making.
1: Thank you. This learner asked, plastic face shields are being considered an alternative to wearing masks in some elementary and secondary schools. Would you comment on the efficacy of face shields compared to masks in public settings
0: you know so this is something that some advocate as an alternative it's probably better than nothing but it is not as uh, good as wearing a face mask that covers the mouth and the nose Um, mainly because as you might imagine you're not really limiting the aerosol spread quite as effectively when you have a mask that's further in front of the face. So that seems to be the case. Obviously, a mask and a shield together is recommended for healthcare workers and gives even more protection, not only the healthcare worker, but for patients. Not that I'm advocating that, but I would still recommend masks. The face shields, of course, there are some people that cannot tolerate or wear masks for reasons. Uh, so those may be an alternative, but my view is that they, as a single intervention, they don't work as well as um, surgical masks or well-constructed uh, cloth masks.
1: Thank you. Next question. Vaccines and development report an expected protection rate of 50 to 70%. Is this as good as it gets?
0: I'm not sure I understand exactly this question because the FDA has sent the 50% benchmark. Now, whether it truly will be at 50 to 70%, I think we don't know until large phase three trials are done. And those trials have to be performed in areas where enough people are exposed to COVID-19, to the novel coronavirus, that actually acquire disease in the placebo arm and we can compare it to the vaccine arm. So maybe it will be better. Uh, the other part that I'm wondering if the questioner is getting a so-called herd immunity, that is, you know, if 60 to 70 percent of the population uh, develops some form of immunity, either natural or through immunization, will that be sufficient? And we think for this kind of respiratory illness, it, it probably would be great to get to that level. I, I suspect even lower levels of herd immunity will be helpful. Uh, although that remains a bit controversial. So these are first-generation vaccines, I guess would be my editorial comment. Most of them are based on developing immune response against the spike protein. We have uh, learned that a number of other antigens from the virus, such as N as in Nancy, M as in Mary, and some of the open reading frame proteins also elicit antibody responses and strong T cell responses. Uh, Some have suggested, although we don't see them yet, that second or third generation vaccines might be better if you put in an antigen mix, not only spike, but some of the other proteins, or that one is better examined to be more of a universal coronavirus vaccine because many feel that we've already had three epidemic coronaviruses, and uh, no doubt there might be a fourth, and it might be best to try to prepare or have a vaccine that has some immunity uh, against a broader array of coronaviruses and not just uh, targeted to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein.
1: Thank you, next question. You mentioned dexamethasone as a standard of care for patients on vents. Is it a standard of care for patients on oxygen?
0: So the information we have is based on a pragmatic trial called the RECOVERY trial. Uh, which was done in the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom had uh, one of the highest mortality rates in the world at 40%. What we know from the dexamethasone trial is it had its greatest impact on people who are ill enough to require mechanical ventilation. However, it looked like even if you needed Uh, supplemental oxygen, not ill enough to land in the ICU on a ventilator, that the mortality rate declined from 25 to 20 percent. So clearly some impact there. Now for patients that did not need oxygen, there was a trend towards harm. And this might be that the dexamethasone was given too early when there was still a lot of viral replication and you're suppressing the immune system, as opposed to trying to modulate an overactive immune response. So I would say at the moment uh, that people are using this both for anyone that requires oxygen, so this is essentially severe COVID-19, having a PaO2 of less than 94% and needing oxygen, or on mechanical ventilation.
1: Thank you. And this learner asks, is it true that people are most infectious in the 48 hours before their symptoms appear?
0: So this answer really depends on your definition of most infectious and and there is some subtlety to it. So virus can be uh, detected up to 48 hours before people develop symptoms. And we also know that some people never develop symptoms. So in a way, if you were going to transmit it to someone else, most infectious as it were, people that don't know they're ill may not take as great care at uh, perhaps socially distancing or staying at home and not exposing themselves to others. It does seem that uh, some of the viral titers can be higher in sicker patients, especially in the first couple of days, but then when people are feeling ill, they're likely not going to be uh, able to transmit as much if they are not uh, going to work or or going on public transit and so on although obviously some people may not easily understand their symptoms or suspect it's due to allergies or just a common cold and so on and this is one of the reasons this virus is uh, really so successful and so easily spread.
1: Thank you. How accurate are the COVID-19 diagnostic and antibody tests that are currently in use?
0: I don't know. And, and I, I don't mean this to be a particularly flip answer, but there's really no gold standard. And the way how I look at it is aggregate information that we're learning about. I would say, for example, the nasopharyngeal swab and doing a molecular assay like PCR. I think many people would consider the standard right now. We know it depends on the phase of illness, for example people uh, have a lower percent of uh, false negatives early in illness, it then can raise to about 20%. And then later in illness, it's again, also can be a false negative. So people will say, well, you know, it could be anywhere from 4% or for false negatives up to 20 to 30%. And it really depends on the stage of illness, it depends on the technique used to do the nasopharyngeal swab. it's hard to know. Now, uh, some will say, look, bronchoscopic alveolar lavage, um, we know this virus likes lower track uh, for replication, that's more sensitive, but we really don't have a high quality study to use as a benchmark to compare other diagnostic tests. We do have a sense that even amongst molecular assays, depending on the site and the technique, there's a range, the saliva versus Sputum, for example, and then which molecular platform you might use. Uh, for example, we know the Abbott ID Now, which is one of the fast turnaround molecular diagnostics. Have a has a lower sensitivity than standard molecular assays. So it, it's uh, and it depends who's doing the testing. So there, there's really not any high quality, very accurate percentages I can give you. It is variable. Now, antibody tests, I will say most that have been generated, uh, and even if they have emergency use authorization, have analytical testing done, meaning the test itself against known positives and known negatives perform well, but we often don't have much clinical validation. Uh, I'll give you an example, the Johns Hopkins test that we have, works very well analytically, but when we did look at some serum that was taken uh, three or five years ago, I can't quite remember the number, about a third of the serum tested positive, uh, probably because of cross-reaction to antibodies made against routine respiratory coronaviruses circulating at that time. So the current antibody tests, I would say, are not used to diagnose COVID-19 because they're not specific enough. They have a lot of cross-reactivity and personally i don't order them for people just wondering oh did was i exposed to it oh you know i had a cold in february did that mean i was exposed to covid-19 because if it is positive i'm not sure you can trust that and uh, you know uh, a substantial percentage of people will be misled to think that they might have immunity Plus we don't know if these antibody tests alone confer immunity, so-called immunity passports. So the roles that we see them, at least how I use antibody tests are very limited in situations where there's uncertainty about someone with an acute illness, Uh, that may not have had initial positive. These are swabs and we want to get a test. They've been ill for two weeks or so. I think there it has a role when you have a high pretest probability. It also has roles, I will say, for epidemiology purposes when you're looking at large populations. But on an individual basis, it's um, even though a lot of people do order this test, I think uh, they may not quite understand the limitations of the antibody tests. Hopefully, in this near future, there'll be more specific coronavirus antibody tests that might look at a two or three different antibodies together to give a more specific answer as to whether you've been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. But those are, uh, you know, more of a thought at this stage than uh, something that can be ordered in a commercial lab.
1: Okay, and this learner asks... If we don't have access to influenza testing and we're treating all viral symptomology as if it were COVID-19, should these individuals self-quarantine for 14 days before being allowed back in classes?
0: Yeah, so this question is interesting because you says you don't have access to influenza testing. So the answer would be yes. I would say if someone has a respiratory illness and you don't know the cause, then it would be prudent to self-quarantine for the standard duration. Now, even if you did have influenza testing and it were positive, I still would self-quarantine because we know in in studies that up to 20% of people, at least when influenza was circulating earlier this winter, and even studies in the southern hemisphere, which where influenza is circulating now, that uh, up to 20% and even higher in some populations have COVID-19 and other viruses, including influenza, so-called co-infections. So there are a number of panels uh, that uh, companies are organizing, at least here in the United States. Many of you might be familiar with BioFire Eplex, and others that should have the top three, influenza, the coronavirus, as well as respiratory syncytial virus, and some are much broader panels with many more uh, viruses and even bacteria for respiratory detection. So I think these will be available. They'll probably be somewhat more expensive, but I I think having the most sophisticated knowledge of what people are experiencing is gonna be important as we head into this next respiratory season.
1: Okay, thank you. As a reminder, to claim credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to QA at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for answering all those really important questions for us today.
0: Yeah, thank you, Faith. They really are uh, important questions and and certainly we'll be getting even more studies that can help refine the questions more, especially on the diagnostic end as we get uh, more and more experience. So uh, please stay safe and stay well for everybody and uh, tune in next week.